All right, um, we're going to jump into our teaching time. Uh, if you are newer with us, uh, we are spending a year plus going through the gospel book of Matthew. So the gospel of Matthew, and we're going verse by verse. Sometimes we have larger chunks. But what we're doing within this uh, gospel of Matthew, going through this entire book, we, there, there are movements within it, as there are within the scriptures. And so within these movements, we, we kind of break them down and we give them different titles in terms of themes and things that are going on. And so we're starting a new section, if you will, or kind of a new movement that comes out of the end of a movement that Jesus has been doing. And so you'll see we're calling this next section Christian in a good way. So we're going to get at that um, as, as we go. So this, this new move, Jesus is what where we've been, is what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. So it begins in chapter 5 of Matthew, and he begins to give what is recorded as his longest, biggest sermon teaching. And it goes on for chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, and it's highly practical, speaking into the daily lives of the people. And within the section we have today, there's a key phrase. And in this key phrase, it's what gives us this um, kind of uh, title. And so the bow on this section is going to cap out at Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. And so we'll throw it up on the screen. This is where we'll kind of wrap up this bow, this thing. It says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if we just hold that there, my question is, what does that verse do to your heart? What does it do to your mind? What does that do to your body when you see that? Because my thought is, in a culture of religious certitude uh, and fervor and of hard work, we're talking West Michigan, religious fervor and certitude, hard work is the highest value, leave it to Beaver, Truman Show external posturing type of thing. It tells me we could book some lifetime appointments to counselors and therapists for a lot of us, thousands and thousands of us, when we see that and go, oh, this is what I got to live up to? This is it? Far too many people have carried the tension, this kind of tension, their entire lives. Be perfect. That's the goal. Even if you intellectually know that perfection is unrealistic for all of life, appearing and presenting a perfect posture is the dominant way. Which can lead then to the Bible, church, doctrines, and the faith being found as massive guilt trips or weapons to wield on family, friends, and others, which then tends to place God as the king of shaming and subjugating. Correct? Which leads to a world drowning in despair and doubt and wondering, is church or the Bible or even God really for me? A good example of this is this week... I read that there was a priest 
who resigned from his position of over 20 years of serving multiple congregations. He resigned his position with quote-unquote a heavy heart. Why? Because in the wake of revelations that he incorrectly performed baptisms. They do not have the exact number that he did, but they know it's in the thousands. So think infant baptisms that we just did. What this, priest, what this priest said within the ceremony, in these ceremonies, was we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The we made all the baptisms invalid. The official doctrinal statement is supposed to be I baptize you in the name, not we. So the priest and the denominational powers that be actually believe that because he didn't say the words perfectly, thousands of baptisms are invalid. Real story. And I can only imagine then that what this has done to think of those families. Oh, wait a minute. Our baptisms are invalid? How many of them are shuddering? Um... Campbell's, I actually not intentionally said, we baptize you. Can we do it again? I think you're going to be okay. Which is why what we talk about when baptism, what it is not in that way. Because I have interacted with plenty of people who think that the words and the rituals are the magical concoction that saves and sends people to the sweet by and by after they die. That's just one layer of what happens when we hold this idea of perfect in our heads. It's likely that most people here today, I may, probably all of us in some way, shape, or form, have had conversations about God, the Bible, church, faith, and within the conversation you picked up that one of these topics has made people feel guilty, fearful, or maybe even angry. Why? Well, as it pertains to the Bible, it's but one of the reasons why we've taken this topic into what we are calling New Wine Wednesday and why we're digging into our approach to the Bible. And then as for the actual embodiment of our faith, which is our trust in Jesus, that's what we hope to lean into now over these next several weeks. What does that look like? Which all leads to the title of our series, Christian in a Good Way. Because I'd say it's both sad and honest to say that, right? But we've had to differentiate that. Have you had conversations where you're like, I'm a Christian, and then you see the look on people's face, the reaction of their body, or something they say that you go, well, but in a good way. Correct? Why? What, what, what has made this split, if you will? Which takes us to the verse about being perfect. So what I want to do is climb back up this foothill in Israel, which is known as the Mount of Beatitudes. We're going to climb back up on this foothill, and we're going to dig into this 
Sermon on the Mount some more. So this is understood to be where in Israel Jesus gave this massive teaching. So we're going to climb back up there and see if we can get a healthy understanding by digging into the context, you lovely, beautiful people. Yeah, let's do that then. Okay, so first we need to back up because we need to take in the full section leading up to this. Otherwise, we can kind of just lob that verse of being perfect at people. So we should back up and dig more into the context. Let's start with Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, Jesus speaking to the people, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Once again, Jesus is referring to the Torah. Go ahead and say Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's referring back to Torah, and he's specifically here referring to the book of Leviticus, your favorite book in the Bible. Now, Leviticus 19.18 says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. I am yod heh vav I am the Lord. And concerning bearing a grudge, Jesus shows to be doing the same expansive fence-building understanding we've talked about over the last couple of weeks that he did a couple of handful of verses ago when he was saying, um, when we talk about not murdering, we actually want to get a bigger understanding of it by paying attention first to the anger in our heart. Because it's easy just to say, I don't murder. But he's like, whoa, 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 you need to back up, and this is for everyone. So this includes anyone that feels a bit of anger. Start paying attention to that, because that's where it begins to head towards murdering, if not with actions, with words. And so he's doing the same thing here, Jesus is. And then in Matthew 5.22 is where we, we got that. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. See, it's not just about physically killing or even that. It's, it's also the anger you hold towards somebody because it's going to take you into actions or words that kill. So he's doing this. And for those who might try to point out, I love studying this. so much fun because even as I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, when you read it, you might go, yeah, but it said there like, uh, it seemed to point out that the neighbor seemed to be like a fellow Israelite. So it's just our people, right? Well, let's keep reading in Leviticus 19 and see if that's what it was saying. When foreigners reside among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigners residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Yahweh your Elohim. I am the Lord your God. Do not forget your story. Don't forget your own story because then you might look at someone else's story and look down on them if you forget the very origins in which you came. Hooey. Come on now. All right. Leviticus 19:33 and 34. Yeah, right there. Foreigners and love that. So um, then we'll head back to chapter 5 and let's go then and keep rolling with it. You have heard it said then, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be called children of your Father in heaven. Whoa. 
Let's start with the significant leap into loving our enemies. Because we know loving family and friends can sometimes be really, really difficult. But loving our enemies? So now I got to wonder, on that hill in Israel, has Jesus been in the sun too long? Has, did he drink too much wine? Because, whoa, right? But here's the thing. When we see the phrase, children of your father in heaven, we understand it's a hyperlink that takes us back to our, what we're calling our table of contents for the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and it takes us back to that. So we jump back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they will what? Be called children of God. Now, just a little bit later, we see Jesus saying, now let's put that into action. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Well, it means to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You begin to live and act into this idea of being a peacemaker, which is someone who seeks the peace and wholeness of the divine for all people, including one's enemies. Stunning. In this, Jesus is tying the clouds together for what people, for people bringing a depth and fullness to what it means to be kids of God. This is what it means. This is what it looks like to live as kids of God. Now, since he was referencing the Torah to, to get at the love your neighbor piece, we should look into that section that says, you heard that it's fine, normal, or accepted to hate one's enemies. Because we read that. So where did Jesus get that from? So now we're going to read the full section because we'll need it all to get at the context. So we'll back up to verse 43 and we'll read through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now here's where it gets so much fun. Many, many years, so many years, scholars were perplexed and wondered, who is Jesus quoting? Because the hate your enemy part is not found anywhere in the Hebrew Scriptures. They cannot find it. So they go, where is he getting this from? And the rabbis of Jesus' time, they did not teach this. But ready? In 1947, 1947, there was an incredible discovery in the desert in Israel, in the caves of Qumran, and we know this discovery to be called the Dead Sea Scrolls. There, this first cave, is where they found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of 
uh, scrolls. We'll go to the next, next cave, this one first, because this is the most famous cave. So when I was in Israel, this is my picture standing there. They said, get this one, because this is where they found most of the scrolls. They found hundreds and hundreds of scrolls of the scripture all of the Hebrew scriptures, what we often refer to as the Old, Older Testament, except for one book. They found these scrolls in there because a Bedouin shepherd was standing around and he was throwing rocks into the caves one day. And one, one rock he threw, he heard a shatter. So he crawled up into the cave and found that there were these clay, clay jars in there and they found within them, when he busted it, they found all of these ancient scrolls and they started to piece them together. And so in this cave, they found all sorts of scrolls and then in this cave, this is the next one, uh, Bible places, this guy takes the best pictures. This cave specifically, one of uh, some of the scrolls they found were known as the code of conduct for one of Jesus' contemporaries called the Essenes. Do you remember the Essenes? We've talked about them the last couple of weeks. So there are these dis com contemporaries of Jesus's, the Pharisees, Sadducees, or Herodians, the Zealots, and the Essenes. And the Essenes were a community that said, we will live separate, we will live holy by living out in the desert and removing ourselves from the pagan, crazy, just corrupt world and we'll live in the desert and we will memorize the scripture and we will live apart until Jesus or until the Messiah that is comes and saves us. So in finding the code of conduct of the Essenes they found this that the Essenes took an oath twice each day to hate forever the unjust and to fight together with the just. The Essenes referred to themselves, don't miss this, as the sons of light who shared an eternal but concealed hatred of the men of the pit as they awaited the day of vengeance, vengeance, the great war when they would destroy the sons of darkness. That's what it says in the scrolls. So once again, when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say, he is calling out an interpretation that says to only love those who love you, it's much too small. It's too narrow because it still makes room in your heart for holding hatred for other people. Jesus is saying bad interpretation. So Jesus provides a more robust and comprehensive picture of the ways of this new kingdom. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus has announced is here. It's among us now. This new kingdom is here. How do we know this? Well, Jesus points out that the very cosmos, the creation, has provided a love for all people because he causes his son to rise on the evil in the good. How fascinating. Jesus says the sun, which is what? Light, doesn't discriminate. So to be a child of the light is to be a child of love, not hate. Think again, Essenes. Are you with me? Come on. Jesus is just, and you wonder why his contemporaries, all of these different groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Essenes, Zealots, we don't like this guy. 
You know what we ought to do is we ought to conspire together and I bet we could get rid of them. And there's more. Then Jesus continues by saying that the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, to which the Babylonian Talmud, that's rabbinic commentary on the scriptures, offers us this. The day of rain is greater than the resurrection of the dead because the resurrection of the dead benefits only the righteous, but rain benefits both the righteous and the unrighteous. We know something much bigger is going on here. And Jesus knows this deep in his bones. Jesus knows that carrying any sort of hate within us will destroy us, at the very least. Our enemies might not have a clue how we feel about them, and they might be skipping along all the while internally we're melting inside. So Jesus says, if your interpretation of the scriptures, that is the yoke in which you live by, is rooted in excluding and vilifying others, then it's too small. Because the love of our Father in heaven is much, much bigger. Then Jesus really starts piling it on by bringing in tax collectors and the pagans as examples. Saying to only love those who love you, well, it's even done by these people. And who are these people? Well, tax collectors and pagans are two groups of people that the Jewish people thought, they're horrible. Tax collectors are typically crooked and greedy. Pagans were unclean and despicable. Yet Jesus says, you know what, if you just love those who love you, well, they're doing, they're, you're, you're only loving as well as they are. They're loving just as well as you are. That kind of love is just a really narrow yoke of tribalism. Oh, only my people, my team, my party, my group. Jesus says that's much, much too small. Much too small. And then he caps this all off with, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which, see, now that seems ridiculous. I know I'm not perfect. And to be perfect, well, it's gone too far. Jesus, you, you went too far. Unless. You know there's an unless there, right? Unless the translated word for perfect in English has much much more to it. It's wider, deeper, and more pliable than how we tend to understand it. The interpretation of perfect is problematic for our modern sensibilities because what is being said here would take the original listener, reader, to the beginning of Leviticus chapter 19. The beginning of Leviticus 19 starts this way. Verse 2, speak to, and this is God speaking, saying, Moses, speak to the entirety of Israel the entire assembly of Israel, and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. This helps us better understand the underbelly of the word perfect, which we need because the Greek definition of perfect tends to be static. 
There is no place left to go because our common understanding of perfect is this is as good as it's going to get. It's topped off. It's finished. It's done. It can't go anywhere. It's perfect. That is a Greek understanding of perfect. We need the Hebrew understanding. So what Jesus has so brilliantly done here is at the beginning of this massive sermon, he gives six examples we just looked at. You have heard it said, but I say six examples of what it means to be met by love and then in turn meet others with that same love. And when you live from this place of love, you live as set-apart people, that is, Holy. That's what holy means, to be set apart. When you receive this love and then in turn give this love to others, you live as a set apart people. But these people are still messy and complex, but they are people, ready? And here's the word, maturing and growing. It was common for rabbis and teachers in Jesus' day to end a teaching or a section of teaching by providing a summary of what we just talked about, something like, so be holy as I am holy. That summarized what we just talked about. When you live this way then, when the love within you is growing and you are growing in that love for others, which now includes, by the way, your enemies... You will live as a set-apart people. Love does that, which is more of a beginning, not an ending, correct? We think, well, perfect means it's done, it's ending. And what Jesus has just done here is he says, actually, this word is about a beginning. You're becoming more, you're growing, you're maturing, which is a beginning, it's not an ending, So we're going to take this one step farther. I want us to meditate on that text. If we take it in and just let it roll around in our heads and hearts, then we let it breathe into our hearts and imaginations more that is going on here. Jesus has given, now tracking notes, this is a good time, six examples of what it means to walk out his yoke, his interpretation of Torah which is a way of participating in the kingdom of heaven, which all sounds familiar, and it sounds kind of like, ready? In the beginning of the story, God created all that was, and he did so in how many days? Oh, six. Interesting. Ready? Think six movements, which begins with light and water nourishing creation for growth. And God declared that all of this is what? Good. That Hebrew word is the word tov. Go ahead and say tov. Tov. He never, we read in the Bible, God didn't say and it was perfect. Tov is the word. Why? Tov means good. It means becoming, growing. It's just beginning. It is not finished. It is just getting started. It is becoming. Then God summons humanity to walk in this new world that is created and steward it forward for the blessing of all. But humanity chose what? Selfishness. 
They chose their small way over the bigness of the divine, and then they hid in the dark shadows of shame and despair. Humanity tried to be God and in turn making themselves enemies of God in their thinking. But then the divine, of course, refused to give up on humanity. And then we read story after story of person after person who were met by the divine as they are, right where they were, in their messiness, which is true for each and every one of us. God has met us where we are, as we are, in our messiness. And then in that, we are invited to receive, to accept, to see divine love of grace and peace and mercy that is poured out on all people. In our goodness, of course, but what I find far more compelling and overwhelming is that love meets us at our worst. When we posture ourselves as enemies of God, the divine refuses to give up on us, on you and me. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, we call it the letter of Colossians, in chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, he says this, Hey, you all, church, listen. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies, where? In your minds, because of your evil behavior. You were living and thinking in ways that are enemies of God. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you what? Huh. In his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. So holiness isn't something we accomplish or gain by doing. It's a gift. It's grace. And we are simply invited to receive this grace, grow in this grace, and then pour this grace out for all others. Are you with me? We are invited to listen and learn from Jesus, then walk in his ways, which creates a whole new world right here in the midst of this one. The kingdom of heaven is within us and moves among us as we choose to walk in love. Which is Paul's story, by the way. This guy Paul... He was once an enemy of God. He hunted down, arrested, and was at least complicit in the murder of followers of Jesus. Until Jesus met him right where he was, as he was. And then everything changed for Paul, beginning with his heart. And I get it. For many of us, loving our enemies still may feel like too big of a leap. So what do we start with? What does Jesus say? Praying for our enemies. Okay, we'll start there. If today I can at least begin praying for my enemies and praying, we, we choose then growth and maturity, which is actually the meaning of that word perfect. To grow and mature. Here it is. The word perfect in the Greek is teleos, mature, growing toward consummate human integrity and virtue. Wouldn't that be more helpful? Be growing in maturity because your Father in heaven is mature. So would you all, kids, hey kids, can we have a talk, God says? Could you all grow? Could you all work on maturing? 
which is about an expanding and expansive heart. It's recognizing and honoring the journey, especially as it pertains to faith, because so many people think they can't belong or they cannot participate because, well, if I walk in that building, lightning's going to strike me. Oh, no, no, no. If I, I can't be a part of the church, I can't. If I open the Bible, uh, the, the, the roof might cave in on me because I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not holy enough in some sort of uh, Greek, static, perfect way. As if that was ever the stated form. God meets us as we are, right where we are, and says, okay, let's grow together. That way of thinking takes me, and we have to go there, to ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, so we can visit my absolute favorite site I studied while in Turkey. The location is the city of Aphrodisias, the ancient city. So we'll go there, poor map. Aphrodisias is here, circle it. So this is Asia Minor or Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Aphrodisias, we're going to go there. And this ancient city was absolutely stunning because it was the home of artists. The greatest artists and sculptors in the ancient world went to school here, were taught here, and came from here. It was also the home of the massive, massive temple to Aphrodite. Remember her? She's the goddess of love and beauty. Now, there's an enormous structure that functioned as kind of a processional or what we might think of as a red carpet that leads to the entrance to the temple. It's called the Sebastion. Here's a sketch. So we'll first have a sketch. This is a sketch of what it looks like. So this massive thing you would walk through to lead up to the temple. It's three stories high. This is what it looked like. And then here's some pictures of uh, what I took of what they've excavated from it. So this is this massive thing. And this was built up on both sides, three stories tall. Next picture. You start to get an idea of what it looks like. Next picture. Now we're going to zoom in and we're going to look at what is on this thing when now you see all these different statues and what it's doing is it's telling a story through pictures. Last slide then. This is one of the that they found excavated that was up on this thing telling a story. This gentleman here is the Emperor Tiberius. The Emperor Tiberius is in the nude because in the Greek world, in the Roman world, nudity meant divinity. So they're saying he is a god on earth and he has got his right arm of power over a small slave, diminutive slave. It's communicating, I hold the right arm of power over you little thing. And so what is being told in the Sebastion is that there are three stories and the, the top story, this, uh, the top one is the Greek story. And then the second tier is the Roman story. And it's telling a story of their history. It was how Rome communicated power over people by sculpting humans into perfect stone structures to be worshipped as gods. Are you with me? 
What they're doing here is they're going to put in stone, this is our story, it's above you. In order to get to our temple, to get there, you have to walk underneath it and see our perfectly sculpted history, and it is of gods that you ought to worship as you come to the temple, which is the opposite of how God chooses to tell God's story. Rather than a human trying to sculpt themselves into being divine, God chooses to become human to show us what it truly means to live as divine. (laughs) Come on! What does Jesus do to prove his resurrection? What does he do to prove the resurrection? Does he show up wielding a sword saying, bow down, I am in charge here? No, he does not. Does Jesus come along and say, hey, I need you to build statues of me and then worship the statues? No, he does not. What does Jesus do? He rolls up his sleeve to the disciples and says, look at my fleshy scars. Then he pulls up the side of his tunic and he says, look at my fleshy mess in which I was speared. I am like you. This seems to jar the disciples when they interact with Jesus to remember things that he had been teaching them all along, recalling that it wasn't about jockeying for the best seat at the table or trying to prove themselves worthy and deserving. Revealing his scars was a way of Jesus showing that he was fully human like them and that it's love that is divine and holy and set apart. Please don't miss this. Friends, you are not loved. God doesn't love you because you're perfect. God loves you perfectly because you're his kid. You're not loved because you're perfect. You're perfectly loved because each and every one of you is a child of God. This isn't about earning or striving for or proving a static perfection. This is about growing in the ways of Jesus, maturing within the journey of being God's kids. We begin by praying how to love more, then we walk out that love more and more. That each prayer, all that it would be, that each prayer would shine more and more light into our hearts, dispelling the darkness we hold toward and for others. As the recently deceased Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said, we are only the light bulbs and our job is to remain screwed in. (laughs) He's funny. He was funny. He was funny. We are only the light bulbs. Our job is to remain screwed in, to be connected to the vine, to be connected to the Christ, to live in that love and then live out that love everywhere we go. We are each a God carrier, a house of the Holy Spirit. It comes with the package of being human. Jesus didn't come to show us how to escape humanity, but how to grow up in our humanity. Incarnation, God and flesh, is an affirmation that it's good to be human. That we would learn to pray God's best for others, which is to pray blessing on them. 
to realize how the sun shines on all people. The rain falls on all people. May that be true of our prayers and our lives. So what I want to do is I want us to end with communion, the Eucharist. It's a practice. It's a ritual, yes. It's a practice of recognizing, honoring. Jesus, you lived this out. You gave sacrificially your life. You lived this way out. And then we understand, we recognize this bread's a picture. It's a symbol of your body that you lived out and you gave for us. You poured out your blood that death would be conquered, that death does not get the last word, resurrection does. And so we take this time to just say, we bless you, God, we thank you the way that you showed us, told us, lived this out, and invite us into this very movement. Because then what we do is we don't just do the ritual, then we leave here and we break ourselves open and pour ourselves out for the healing of the world. That others would see the love of God. That's why we do it. So that people would go, oh, we serve, we give we love people, and they're awakened. They go, man, all of a sudden, I feel the warmth of the sun. I feel the nourishment of the rain. It's a picture. We do so by this love, which we say thank you, bless you for, with this ritual. So there will be a couple of us standing over here, and there will be a couple of folks standing over here, and it's just an invitation as we sing, as we listen, as we absorb, as we reflect, that we can come up and we may hear some words similar to, this is just a picture of Jesus' body which was given for you. This is a picture in the cup. This cup is a picture, a symbol of Jesus' blood poured out for you. We take it in remembrance of this. And then we live forward from this remembrance and how we do our life in the ways of Jesus. Growing, maturing, following more and more in this way. So you can come as you feel led and we'll hand you bread to dip in the juice and to take and reflect. And you can do that as you move and then we're going to head to my favorite benediction of all time. So, uh, we'll sing, and then um, you all can come as we're singing. You can come and take. Gluten-free is over here. I'll just try and make space for everyone. Come. Crushing 
If it is all possible for you to stand, I would love for us all to stand because, see, in the Romans, to tell their story, they carved out humans into static stone. That's how they chose to tell their story. God chooses to tell God's story through us. Look, look, standing here together, this side and this side with an aisle down the middle, you are God's Sebastian. You are the way in which God is telling God's story. That's why I love this site so much, because I sat there and I thought, we're not stone, we're not carved in some static perfection. We're a fleshy mess, but we're God's fleshy mess. And he chooses to use us to tell his story by loving us, meeting us right where we are, and then inviting us to love others, and that shines the light of Christ on them. You are telling God's story. That is a holy mess, but holy nonetheless. <laughs> you are God's story being told and lived out. May you know that you do this through the grace and peace and power and mercy of Christ. You receive that. We say yes. Thank you for that grace, God. And then we in turn go out from here and we shine that, rain down that for others to experience God's love. So as you go here today, know that you go, may you go in the grace and peace of Christ and shine that others will see the goodness of God. Amen. And amen. Have a great Sunday.